The expelling of demons is the direct attack of Jesus on Satan. In Mark 1.15, Jesus was, has succeeded in withstanding the attack of Satan in the wilderness. He then begins preaching that the rule of God is near. No sooner had he stated these words, remember Mark 1.21 says that, uh, <clears throat> that he was teaching about the kingdom, then the demonic forces swing into reaction. That the kingdom rule of God has come in Jesus is exactly what the demon in Mark 1.24 sees and understands. He recognizes Jesus and says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He knows that Jesus has come to destroy it. He says, have you come to destroy us? The answer is yes. Jesus has come to destroy the demon. Mark 1.25 says that Jesus rebuked him and told him to be silent. The two Greek words here are strong words. The first word rebuke means to scold, to denounce, to censure in order to bring an action to an end. What Jesus is saying in rebuke is stop it. That's enough. Looking at the person as a victim of an unseen force, Jesus is dealing with that unseen force in a ruthless and pragmatic way. Furthermore, he tells them to be silent, which means to muzzle, strangle, or tie shut. And so when Jesus is speaking to this demonic presence, he's speaking in a very powerful way. He's throttling them and saying, that's enough, come out, be gone, be silent. He's speaking in power and in a command, and the result was the demon left. Thus, Mark records that Jesus lashes out at the demon, denouncing him, and then chokes him off. The result is the man is set free. It is, it is not Satan, the strong man of Mark 3.27, who alone is to be bound. It is also his co-workers who are being attacked, strangled, choked, and destroyed. Jesus used the same word rebuked in delivering the boy with a dumb spirit as recorded in Mark 9.25, also in Matthew 17.18 and Luke 9.42. The driving out of demons, the smashing of Satan's ruling grip on the stolen world was proof and fulfillment that Jesus had announced had come true. The rule of God was in fact here. The kingdom of God was being expressed. Whenever we see power over demons, we, can, we understand now that we're seeing the works of the kingdom. Demons can manifest at many levels. There are many dimensions of demonic control and infiltration and activity. All of it is nasty business. I wish I could say to you that you could move into the spirit realm and operate in the spirit kingdom and not have to deal with these nasty little entities. But you do have to deal with them. Every place I've gone in the last four and a half years, I have found demonic presence. I've cast demons out of thousands of people at this time. Wherever we have gone, we have seen this demonic presence lifted and expulsed and driven out. We've cast demons out of pastors, much less Christians. We've cast <laughs> demons everywhere that we've gone. There is a demonic stronghold in the church today. And we must come to grips with the reality of it. A few weeks ago, I had a three-day seminar here in which I taught at length on the subject of spiritual warfare and dealt with the issue of demonic power and demonic stronghold in the church of Jesus Christ. You may want to get the tapes on that. They're not, uh, I don't know that all of it's out, but one half of the series is complete and available. Soon all of it will be out. 
But my point in telling you that is that you cannot move into the realm of healing without moving into the realm of expulsing spirits. You're going to deal with demons. Now, you're either going to deal with demons ignorantly and let them deal with you, or you're going to deal with demons intelligently with a good understanding of your scriptural power and basis and authority and be able to deal with them ruthlessly, powerfully, and pragmatically. My encouragement is that you take the latter. Learn to deal with demons, lest they deal with you. A second arena of conflict is the arena of disease. The next area of attack by Jesus was, uh, for us to view is in the area of disease. This attack is upon the weapons of Satan. We simply cannot understand the environment of the Gospels unless we pull out the plugs from our minds and allow our scientific preconceptions to flow away. We need to recognize that most of us read the Scripture with blinders on. When we read these texts about demonic encounter, when we read these texts about healing, we don't even read them. We don't even see them. We look at them as segue passages, historical references so that we can get on to the important things, the teachings of Jesus. For I wasn't aware for years that nearly one half of three of the Gospels was dedicated to the subject of healing. That over 40% of the New Testament deals with healing. The Bible is full of healing, but no one ever told me. And so I read it as though it was not there. And for me it wasn't. The most powerful prayer I prayed in those days was God guide the surgeon's hands. And he didn't hear that one very often. <laughs> My encouragement to you is that you wake up and recognize that that took me years to understand. That there is power over demons and power over disease. In the worldview of the day, sickness was seen as the work of Satan, a weapon of his demons. Sickness and disease was and is one of the ways in which Satan rules his captured world. Thus, when Jesus heals disease, he's pushing back the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is not only attacking the person of the demons, he's attacking their works. Jesus undoes their damage. Satan causes sickness and Jesus heals sickness. There's nothing the devil can do that Jesus didn't undo at the cross. You and I have been called to help the undoing of the enemy that he may be done in. The woman with the spirit of infirmity is a classic story referenced in the 13th chapter of Luke, verses 10 through 17. Let me read that. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Now, Jonathan, that we brought up earlier today, has had five years in that thing. This woman had been in her condition 18 years. Can you imagine the atrophying of the muscles, the weakness, the flatulence of the body? No power, no control, the muscular spasms, the uncomfortableness of it, the mindset, the psychology of sickness over a prolonged period of time, the difficulties that the people in wheelchairs and people who are incapacitated have, the sudden realization of how tall everything is, how far everything is, how difficult it is to do the minor things like cooking and things like that that were, that were normal and expected to the same woman at a different point in time. Suddenly everything's hard. Everything they do. This woman had been in this condition 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't straighten up at all. Have you ever seen a person like that with that kind of curvature of the spine? 
bent over, couldn't raise up at all. I remember a lady in South Africa that walked into our meeting like this with a, you know, she, she had a little walker and she, she would hold that thing and walk like that. And she walked out with that thing over her shoulder. <laughs> I want to tell you something. When you see God do things like that, it changes your view of things. It alters the reality that you operate in. You recognize that at any moment God can do a marvelous and great deed in your presence. And it's like someone said one time, he said, hanging around you is like wiring a house with the electricity on. <laughs> you know, at any moment you're liable to get a lot of juice. I said, hey, it's not me that you're hanging around with, it's him that you're hanging around with. And it's true, it is electrifying. And so she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free. Get it? You are set free from this infirmity. Get it? Set free. She was under something. She was controlled by something. She was incarcerated. And Jesus has set her free from her infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Can you believe it? <laughs> oh, spiritual blindness. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. <laughs> and then the Lord answered her, you hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it to water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, this is a believer, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound. Why didn't Jesus say, a daughter of Abraham with curvature of the spine? No, he said, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound. He said, well, poor Jesus, he didn't have a medical education. <laughs> a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. And when he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated because they saw it in its proper context. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I can identify with both sides of this thing. I have been one of those guys operating with, with religious blindness. For years I hid behind theology that I had been taught and would not investigate the works of God. Frightened that if I investigated, I might find out they were true. Fearful at every turn. Now, in the worldview of the day, sickness was seen as the work of Satan. We see this expressed in Jesus as he says, this woman, the daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan. Today, we would have difficulty with this. We would say, well, that was curvature of the spine. It was probably caused by thus and thus and thus, and we would come up with a medical uh, a viewpoint, an opinion. Whatever the means... The personage was Satan. However he did it is not the point. The point is who did it, not how. We've been called to deal with the who's, not the how's. The woman with the spirit of infirmity then is classic to the, the, the issue of, of uh, worldview and the tension that we have. Jesus ascribes these things directly to the perversity of Satan. He points to the crippled old lady, bent over like a horseshoe for 18 years, and instead of diagnosing it as curvature of the spine, Jesus makes a staggering claim that this is a physical infirmity and is caused by no one else and nothing less than Satan himself. 
We look at crippling diseases today and often piously shake our heads and speak all the trite absurdities of a non-thinking people by saying, well, it's the will of God. And, you know, it's hard to understand the will of God in these things. And we'll understand it better when we get to heaven. And these platitudes, uttered usually with sonorous religious tones, are an abomination to a God of mercy and love who has given us the authority to work the works of Jesus and prophesied himself that we would do them. And we must come to grips with the fact that we've been a disobedient people, sinful and resistant to holy God and to his work. Our theology becomes bankrupt in the light of this. Our hands are tied, our minds confused, our eyes blurred. We have become comatose Christians, asleep at the post in the time of conflict and warfare. Not so with Jesus. He looked at, at this and in crystal clear terms, he said, it's the work of the devil. And I came to do the devil in. Jesus was a devil duster. <laughs> he came to stop him at every point. There was nothing about the devil that he liked. Jesus at one, on one occasion said, here comes the enemy and he has nothing in me. And we, the church today, cannot make the same claim because we've yielded ground to the enemy at every turn. We've been full of bitterness and anguish and hostility and fearfulness and foolishness against our brothers in the body of Christ. We've mouthed foolish statements. We've again and again received lies and stories about others. We've given ourselves over in every way to the enemy's activity. And then we come before our holy God and say, God, heal us. God, bless us. God, minister to us. And when he doesn't jump right to it, we then say, well, I guess he isn't doing that anymore. And that's what's going on in the church of Jesus Christ today. But it's got to change. It's time that we turn from the wickedness and the pursuit of vanity that's preoccupied our minds as we've been obsessed with a desire for success and for bigness that we might be somebody. You know, when you can't get close to God, you spend most of your time counting people so that you can brag about how many you've got. It's time that we quit counting people and became accountable to holy God and walk with him. This passage, in my opinion, is loaded with theological significance. Notice the woman had a spirit of infirmity. Also, that Luke the doctor is writing this text. He is confirming the idea that illness is being inflicted by some supernatural force. So we don't misunderstand his meaning. Luke equates this spirit of infirmity with Satan, who has done this twisting and binding. In healing this sick woman in, in Luke 13, 16, Jesus is engaged in attacking the demonic host. According to Edward Langton in his Essentials of Demonology, special demons came to be associated with particular forms of diseases or sickness. Certain diseases were held to be caused by particular demons. Jesus has given us control. Jesus has given us authority. Jesus has given us power over the work of demons and over demons themselves. Let's look at yet a third arena. 
excuse me, before we do that, I want to give one more illustration, and that's the healing of the mother-in-law of Peter as referenced in Luke 4, verses 38 and 39. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. And so he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. In this passage, Jesus stands before Peter's mother-in-law who is sick with fever. He rebuked the fever. Here we have precisely the same language as used on the uh, fever as was used on the demon in the pre preceding text. Now, one of the difficulties we have with our scientific materialism, with our Western rationalism, is we have difficulty speaking to non-personality. How can we speak to a fever? It doesn't have an intelligence. It doesn't have a mind. Unless, of course, that fever is caused by something that does have intelligence and personality. In this case, I think we have good reason to believe that it did. But whatever the circumstances, Jesus spoke to it. On another occasion, Jesus spoke, uh, inferred, or actually uh, explicitly stated, that we should learn to speak to mountains, that they be removed. Now, we always see that as a metaphorical uh, illustration. You give me some sort of a graphic dimension to a, a theological point of how we should learn to use faith. But the point is, Jesus said it. And here we see him doing it, speaking to things that do not have intelligence, and they obey him. Get it? We've been called then to speak, and in that speaking, to accomplish the force of God's will. If there's any meaning in language at all, and I think that there is, if words are to be used as clues to our thoughts, then the only conclusion possible from this text is that Jesus uses the same word in addressing a fever as he does addressing a demon because he sees a lethal unity between sickness and Satan. You say, well, that's not a popular viewpoint today. So what? It probably wasn't a popular viewpoint in his day, but it was his viewpoint, and that's the focal point. He rebuked the fever. He spoke to it directly and told it to stop. Once again, if language means anything, the only possible conclusion is that Jesus considered the so-called simple malady of a, of a woman, of human existence, a demonic force which had to be recognized as such and broken and the person, the victim, had to be delivered up. Let me hasten to say that I'm not here suggesting that all sickness is caused by demonic force. What I am saying is that some sickness is, and like Jesus, we need the anointing of the discernings of spirits to enable us to pray directly and correctly concerning illness. When we deal with uh, a, an approach that we use for healing, which I'll be addressing later this week. We'll talk about various kinds of diagnostic decisions that have to be made as you pray for people. And we must become somewhat expert in operating both in the natural realm, in our understanding, as well as the supernatural realm, operating in our spirits through the gifts of the spirit. Both must be in focus. Both must be operative. God requires the use of our minds as well as offers the gift of his spirit to do works. Now, a fourth area of dominion, a fourth area of conflict between these two kingdoms is the arena of nature. Just as the demonic forces play havoc in the lives of men through sickness and demonization, they also indirectly exert their perverted influence for evil by causing nature to run amok. 
At Mark 4, 35-41, we see the conflict with nature which is under demonic control with the rule of God. This is another attack by Jesus on the satanic forces. This story has been used to posit the meaning of inward harmony. As the winds and the waves of life begin to sink your boat, Jesus is there to speak, peace be still. While this moral may well be true, it simply overlooks the intent of the author to show Jesus in conflict with nature itself. You see, again, our Western rationalism can't deal with these kinds of texts. I defy you to bring a commentary here today or tomorrow that deals with this text. I've looked at them all. They don't know what to do with these texts. They don't understand walking on water. They don't understand speaking the winds and waves. They don't understand multiplying bread. They don't understand making wine out of water. And so they bow to his divinity and say, well, that's Jesus. That's the kind of stuff he did. Never grasping the implications that there is a mindset, an entity, a malevolent force that was causing a resistance to the will of God. And Jesus worked the works of miracles over nature that he might demonstrate that he had the authority and the power to do so. That the principal activity here would be the manifestation of the kingdom of God in dominion over these kinds of issues. And that what's more, we've been called to work the same works. This story has often been used then to posit these kinds of, of uh, concepts, but they're really superfluous to the text and not called for. This is a real and literal attack upon the entrenched forces of evil which hold the world itself in, in bondage and decay. The enemy is out to do Jesus in. He wants to kill him and kill the apostles. It's interesting to me that the immediate scene uh, after this encounter on the water is the Gadarene demoniac or demoniacs depending on which text you're reading but in either case we know that we're dealing with a multitudinous number of demonic forces now my perception is that there is an intelligence operating in the spirit realm I believe that the enemy is able to confer with camps I believe that the enemy is established in principalities and powers about the earth and there are times and places in which the enemy is more manifest than at other times and places. As he operates in the context of his kingdom and his dominion over people, places, and things, there are times in which he's more firmly entrenched and places in which he's more firmly entrenched than he is in other places and in times. I believe that the enemy was aware of the coming of Jesus. I believe the intelligence came and said, Jesus is coming across the water. And the enemy says, we'll stop him. Wind and the waves. Now, you know, it's one thing when people that are ignorant are frightened, but it's another thing when people are well advised and are frightened. There were four guys in that boat that had fished those waters all their lives, and they were scared. They turned to Jesus and said, wake up, we're dying. Jesus got up, and it always puzzled me in that text. He got up and said, I thought he, I wish he should have got up and said, where, grab your bucket. Instead, he says, where's your faith? That never made any sense to me at all. I used to read that text over and over again. It seemed like a crazy thing. And then he rebuked the guys. Here they are, scared half to death. The winds and the waves are towering over them. The boat's about to capsize, and Jesus says, where's your faith? I, was, I didn't have any. 
I, I didn't bring any. You know? I'm wet right now. I'm scared of getting wetter, you know. But you know, the interesting aspect about that text is one day I was at the Sea of Galilee sitting on the shore there, and I was reading that text early one morning, and I said, Lord, what does this text mean? And for the first time, you know how the Lord can highlight a text for you? For the first time, the very first sentence when it says, and he said unto them, let us go over to the other side. For the first, I always saw that as sort of a segue sentence that, you know, set the stage. Like, we're, going to, we're getting in a boat now, and we're going over to the other side. Like, hey, let's go over to the other side. And I was, I was looking at the text, and it was highlighted by the Spirit of God, and he, and he spoke to me, and he said, the same person that said, let there be light, said, let us go over to the other side. You see, they were going to the other side. <laughs> they may have gone under the water to the other side, <laughs> over the water to the other side, or on the water, but they were going to the other side. Jesus said, where's your faith? I said we were going to the other side. Get it? Now, I want to tell you something. When the waters come, when the winds prevail, you may forget who spoke to you and told you to go out and minister in his name. I have. But he's used that text a number of times to remind me that I've been called to conflict. I've been called to battle in his name. And I need to recognize who my enemy is and what he does. A fifth arena is the power over death. We now come to the last area of miracles which is treated in the synoptics. The power of Jesus over death. Death is the one major weapon of Satan. Of all of his weapons, it was and still is the most fearful. It was the worst because it was final. It was in death that Satan's final rule had to be broken. If Jesus had come to fight the strong man, if he intended to break the reign of Satan, then he would have to fight Satan at the place where Satan was the strongest in his power of death. Thus, the miracles of resuscitations assume an imposing importance in the gospel narrative. There are three specific and one general account of raising the dead given to us in the gospels. Let's look at one of them. In Luke, the seventh chapter, verses 11 through 17, we find the story of the healing of the uh, widow of Nain's son. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. And then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. <laughs> A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Now, if you don't have that underlined, underline it. God has come to help his people. You want to know what God's like? Look at his son, Jesus. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He's the spitting image of his dad. He's the exegesis of the Father. You want to know what the Father's will is concerning the help of his people? Look at what Jesus did when people needed help. Get it? 
The Father and the Son are one in unity and oneness and totality. The Son does the bidding. The work says the words, does the deeds of the Father. The Father's will is expressed through the Son. And the Son has called you and I to be one with the Father and Himself. We too are to do these works. We too are to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to do miracles over nature, to uh, rule in all the areas and arenas that the enemy has heretofore operated unfettered because the church has not been aware of its authority and power. At Luke 7, 11 through 17, we have the account of the widow of Nain's son. And Nain is about 25 miles south of Capernaum. Jesus was traveling with his companions as he entered Nain, and he saw a burial procession. He was moved with compassion for the mother and touched the bier and spoke to the young man, and the dead man sat up and spoke. I love it. I just love it. I've, I've, I've been wanting to do one of those <laughs> for five years. I have. I think, we're, I think it's, you know, it'll look good on your record, you know? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to have that one on your record? I'd like to do one of those. I've been traveling all over the country and around the world and uh, waiting for the chance to do one. I've asked several times if there were any volunteers, but <laughs> nobody to date has wanted to play. Now, I know that that's in the future. I know that's going to happen. We've worked with the rest of this stuff. I know that we're going to do this stuff. I'm looking for, I've met people, I've read stories, I've talked to people that know people that have raised the dead. God is doing this kind of work today, just like he did in that day. And you and I have the privilege of, and the access to enter into this dynamic and help the cause of God by doing the work of God as Jesus gives direction. Now, finally, we want to look at one other aspect, and that is the ministry of Jesus over sin. Basileia not only means the dynamic rule of God, but it also is used to designate the gift of life and salvation. It is not only the fullness of a future salvation, it is also the blessedness of salvation now. The kingdom of God is his gift. The rule of God is not a fearful power before which men are compelled to bow. It is rather his gift to his children. Jesus himself said it was the Father's good pleasure to the give the kingdom. To the kids. The kingdom was God's gift and can be illustrated as by a study of the word salvation. We must here realize that Jesus' intent was to save the whole man. We in the Western world have departmentalized man and our language betrays our emphasis. We talk of having people's souls saved because our model has led us to, to such belief structures. The Grecian view of man is dualistic and man is seen as a two-part being, body, soul, and spirit. This is seen as opposed to the unseen. Through Aristotelian philosophy, the tendency was to divide a man into further compartments according to logic. The spirit, the mind, the subconscious, the will, the emotion, sensibilities, the body, and on and on and on. This analytical, rational, and categorical worldview has become the basis for Western thinking. This view of man has led to the treatment of various aspects of the person without reference to the other aspects, let alone relationships and environment. The individual in this view is made up of different parts, rattling around quite independently of one another under the skin. All one needs to do is change the bad parts. Now this assumption is controlling the thinking of many of us as it relates to our counseling and to our general ministry, 
much less the, the ministry of healing as it relates to the people that come to us that need help. The Hebraic view of man regarded man as an integrated whole. In Hebrew thought, the total person is not treated as a body over against a spirit, but as an inspirited or inbreathed by the breath of God kind of body. There is no dichotomy of flesh and spirit, but a total personality. With this in mind, one should understand that salvation, which is a gift of the kingdom, is for the whole man, not some independent part. Jesus came to undo what had been done by the fall. He came to restore man in his fullness and completeness. This includes sin, but is not limited to it. In Mark, the 10th chapter, verse 45, which says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This text tells us that Jesus came to buy us back out of the slave market. He did that by the, the cross and its resurrection. Now, in summary, what I'm saying about these five arenas of conflict and battle is that Jesus preaches the eminent arrival of the kingdom of God. Then in his acts, and he brings out and brings in the kingdom. He routes out the demonic hosts and reinstitutes uh, re the rule of God. Where Jesus is active, there the rule of God is. Where the people can see Jesus at work, there in the midst of them is the kingdom. Where Jesus is, the powers of Satan are broken and God's rule is restored. This is the good news, that the kingdom of God has come to demolish the kingdom of Satan. The good news will be accomplished or accompanied with the good works. The good news is that we have come to, at, at this time to have a foretaste of the completed kingdom. We are here and now enjoying that that's going to be there and then. There will be a time in which all of it will be complete. At this point it's intermittent. It isn't all working now perfectly. We don't see every person we pray for healed instantaneously. We don't see every person we pray for even healed. But we see more people prayed for and healed now than we've ever seen before. We've seen more of the miraculous now than we've ever seen at any time. And we're accomplishing a new ground. We're gaining new turf. We're learning to operate in the kingdom operatives. We're learning to operate under the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, we are seeing Jesus glorified as the will and the work of the Father is accomplished through us that have been received the commission from Jesus' own hand. The kingdom of God is being expressed in at least these five arenas. You and I have focused most of our Christian life on one dimension. And now we're being opened up to at least five. There's probably 500, but here's at least five. Power over demons, power over death, power over disease, power over nature, and power over sin that men and women that are lost may be found and come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Amen. Ready for a clinic? Put your stuff down. Let's stand.
When, um, whenever we come to this point, I just love it. <laughs> the juices start coming in my mouth because you see, we're gonna we're gonna do some risk taking, F A I T H. And I don't know what God's gonna do. You know, what if He does nothing? That would be weird. What if I miss what he's telling me and we go off in some strange direction? That would be strange too. But what if I don't? What if I hear what God's saying and we do exactly what he wants done? What if? You see the adventure in it? Every time it's fun. Every time it's exciting. It's, it's predictable only in one respect, that God is going to take control. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your love and in your gift. We thank you for the salvation that's in Christ and that that salvation covers the whole of humanity, every aspect. And so we lift ourselves to you, Lord, and we ask for your direction now that you would move by your Spirit showing us that that you want to accomplish here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll wait. get that other mic. I think it's on the floor. Can we use a book? Explain. Lloyd's going to give you this other one. Stay back about here with it. All right, let's be seated. The Lord just gave me a word for a rather common ailment, but it's unique in, in certain aspects. He, he said that there's someone here with a sinus headache. I said, Lord, what, what you know, give me some more information. He said, well, this is a, a person that's had this condition for about 10 years. I said, you mean they've had a constant headache? He said, almost constantly for 10 years. And he said, I want to, to deliver them of this condition today. Now, at that point, I, I got rattled because we were talking microphones, and I wasn't exactly sure, but I think he told me it was a female. But I'm not absolutely sure of that. Who has had a sinus headache condition for 10 years? Would you come? I don't know what sign is, but it's been there. <laughs> <laughs> Your name's Charlene? Yes. Come over here, Charlene. Stand in the middle of us, will you? I'm going to let Blaine pray for you. Now, the Lord told me that this condition is an afflicting spirit. All right? So we're going to pray... I'm going to let Blaine pray as the Lord directs him. and I don't even know if the Lord will confirm that. But I, I sense this is what the Lord is telling me. Now keep your spirit eyes open because things are happening already. 
The Spirit of God is moving on her already. Remember, we must learn to see in the Spirit. You're now in that process. There are things going on. Try to see what you're seeing. Your mind will resist it. <laughs> Let it happen, Charlie, all the way. Clear down the spine now, Lord. You don't have to talk a lot when you're praying. And we're getting deeper now. There's a lot of hurt inside and pain. power of that anger in the name of Jesus. How do you feel? I feel wonderful. You feel wonderful? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That means like I've got electricity going through my body. I've waited for so long. <laughs> you have electricity going through your well, body? that's what it feels kind of like I've got. Does it go clear to your feet? I just got one spot and I'm kind of, I don't know, kind of 
feel like I'm loaded. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what kind of terminology that is, but... That's theological, loaded. <laughs> I mean, Most of us relate to that. <laughs> Right here? Now, Father, we just speak to this. In the name of Jesus, I break its power. I command it to lift. You hold her up, Blaine. And what did you see? I'm asking you a question. And I want you to record in your mind, what did you see? What did you see happen just then? What did you see? You saw someone come up on a stage. We prayed for her. As she came up, we gave you indicators of what we thought was her problem. God gave us a word of knowledge that she had a condition, a duration of about 10 years. Pain through the neck, the back of the head, and down through the sinuses. Constant condition. As we prayed for her, you saw degrees of release occurring, degrees of penetration. At, at one point, the healing process stopped momentarily, and we prayed again, and then it get, began again. Then it began getting inside to the, in the emotional realm, and pockets of hostility, anger, frustration, and fear, pain began opening up. That's what those eruptions were from point to point. And, we, and you were seeing now the releasing of a person from the inside out. You see, the headache was symptomatic of something else. It wasn't the real problem. That's what she felt, but it wasn't the real problem. The real problem is some pain, and I think it was caused from a social problem, social area. Now, Blaine is continuing to minister to her in another area. Now you notice that when we're praying, that when the Spirit of God comes on people, they, they'll get woozy and sometimes they'll almost fall. We don't allow them to fall if we can help it. We usually will seat them or hold them up. We don't see any advantage in ministering to them on the floor. And we don't think it's a mark of our spirituality or of theirs to fall down. We recognize that in some circles that it's perceived that way. We're not trying to come off like the great men of God. We're just trying to serve a great God. And we're trying to do it in a way that's accessible to you. So you can learn to do what we do. Got it? I think you do. At least some of you do. Did you notice the involuntary spasming of muscles in the face and the eyelids and, and all? That's, that's somewhat normative to this situation. Now, Blaine is continuing to minister to her because I think he has the same impression I have, that there's a social-emotional dimension of foundation for this, that this afflicting spirit has brought this work on her as a result of some interchange somewhere back in her history between with her and someone else, and that all of this came as a result of of her getting hurt and angered, and he's dealing now with further aspects of it and releasing her at, at other levels.
Day. I think it's time for you to heal. You ready? Now, a moment ago, the Lord gave me a strong impression that he's anointed a number of you that have tingling and energy and heat in your hands. Would you raise your hands if you have that feeling in your hands right now? Okay, there's quite a few of you. All right, I want you to stand, those of you that have this tingling and heat and energy. All right? Now... All that is, is is an unction or an anointing that God gives from time to time to prepare you for ministry. It isn't something, you know, that uh, we have to build a great theology on. It's just something we've observed. It's a phenomena. Okay? And it'll help your faith for a while because when you have that energy and unction, you, you sense that, well, you know, God's here and he's, he's, he's going to minister through me. All I'm trying to do by getting you to identify it is to recognize that that's an unction that will come. Some of you will receive that. Others of you are already receiving it now since they stood. Uh, You'll receive it again and again. I used to get it a lot when I first started praying for the sick. I hardly ever get it now, except when the Lord wants to do it for others. And and while I was standing here, I suddenly got it, and I knew that He wanted to do it for others. All right? Now, now that you've identified yourselves, you can sit back down. And we're going to give some other words of knowledge, ask those people to stand. And I want those of you that, that receive this unction to go over and help whoever it is that's praying for the various individuals. And I want you, as much as you're able, to put your hands on the spot where they're incapacitated or sick, okay? If, it's all, if at all possible or convenient or proper, okay? Do you have any additional words? you want to get your microphone? There's uh, somebody here with a perforated left eardrum that needs healing. Um, there's also, good, there's also uh, somebody... Well, one of you that had the anointing, now go over and, and join that team that's forming there. That's it. That's it. There's also somebody with a um, problem with the opening right at the top of their stomach. They've been having a lot of like indigestion right here but it's the, the sphinct- there's a sphincter muscle right here right okay here we go in fact you've been even having it this there's morning there's about seven or eight of you one okay. two three four five six there's more there's another one all right now we got eight there's there's also um, somebody with a um, the tailbone in the very back grows inward instead of coming down and going out that way it grows inward and it causes a lot of pain there it's a congenital condition but you've injured it in recent months Tailbone. Where are you? Okay, right back there. Where? Right back there. Guy raising okay, his hand. Good. You may not want to lay hands on his tailbone. <laughs> How you feeling? You feel real good? Is the pain gone? Mm-hmm. Good. You can go be seated if you like. God bless her. She says she's waited so long that she feels like the little girl in the wheelchair. That It's been 10 years and she's waited for this. Someone with a splinter in the left elbow. The bone has been splintered. I can see this 
I don't know how to describe it. It's a splinter. You've injured your left elbow. Who's that? Okay, over here in the back. Would you gather around him and pray? And one of you that has this energy in his hands, make sure you put it right on the elbow. We have someone here too. Two different people. There's also someone who has a uh, neuritis in the neck that's been triggered by a car accident. Is that you? Okay. Great. There's someone here too. Great. Right here in front, you guys. Would you Great. Pray for her? Yeah, that's it, John. You need prayer too? People get around this gal right, right here, here too. There's also somebody with a, a cyst uh, on the inside of their left thigh. Who's that? A cyst on the inside of the left thigh. Right okay, back there. Way in the back. Okay. There's also uh, a, a man here that has a hernia on the lower left-hand side of his abdomen. In fact, you're, you're going to have to go in for surgery. And the Lord wants to heal this this morning, too. Hernia on the lower left-hand side? Yeah, lower left-hand side of the abdomen, right down A here. man. Where's that? Come on. You have to get up if you want to get healed. Okay, back there. Okay. Let me tell you what's going on with Blaine and I right now. We're receiving what we call words of knowledge. We believe the Bible calls it that also. Words of knowledge come through impressions in our mind, in our mind's eye. We see with our mind's eye. They usually come five different ways that are the most common. One of the ways is that we see it. We actually get a picture. As in the case of the elbow, I saw what looked like an x-ray of an elbow with a little splinter sticking out of it, off the side of it. So often we'll see it. Sometimes we just, well, we read it. We'll see something written like a banner, like off the top of a newspaper, and it'll just sort of float across our, our horizon. You'll just see it. Something like, you know, it just goes. And so you read it. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you read it. Sometimes you know it. It's just something you know. Blaine often gets those when he comes into a room. He'll just know, he'll look at somebody and know he's supposed to pray for them and even know what's wrong with them. I, I don't know that I've ever received that impression. But there are unique aspects to the gifts and the way they operate. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you read it, sometimes you know it, sometimes you feel it. You'll feel sensitivity in your body, sometimes you'll feel pain. You'll be aware of an area of your body. And you know there's nothing wrong with you. It's, it's because God's giving you an impression for someone else. Ha ah, this guy got healed just now. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you read it, sometimes you uh, know it, uh, sometimes you feel it, and sometimes you speak it. Now those of you that prophesy and speak in tongues know what I'm talking about. It's not something that comes through your mind. It just, it'll just, you'll just be speaking and it'll just come off of your mouth. And uh, sometimes in large meetings like this, we get hundreds of these words, uh, especially if there's a great deal of resistance, fear. The Lord will give us detailed accounts of people. Sometimes we have 15 or 16 pieces of information about an individual and what's wrong with them. And all it's for is to help that person respond in faith. They really didn't need words of knowledge. All they needed to do was believe. But they couldn't believe, and so God gave them so that it would help them at that time. So that's what you're hearing or that's what you're viewing right now when we're giving these. 
also have uh, somebody here. I, they have 60% deafness in their right ear. It's a male. 60% deafness in the right ear. Gentleman right over here. Okay. All right. Good. Right here also. There's, there's... Come on up, Tom. Yeah, come on up, Tommy. This is, this is hard to describe because I'm feeling it as well as seeing it. Yeah, like a, up in the throat, behind the sinuses, like high in the throat, above the base of the tongue, there's a, a, like a, about a golf ball-sized cyst or tumor. You can feel it when you swallow. It's been with you for quite some time. On the right side? Yeah, up, kind of up, up high right in, here. in the throat, but high, like tumor. located behind the sinuses. Back here at the base of the mouth, in the throat. Who has that? A tumor here on the right side. You, you feel it like in the roof of your mouth, way in the back, up, up high in the throat. Okay, while you're thinking about your tumor. <laughs> now, I want you to dial something up to your awareness. Can you feel the heaviness in the room? Can you? That's the presence of God. That's Get His manifest presence. It'll get heavier, believe me, before the week's over. But I want you to dial it up because most of you live unconscious of those kinds of things. You're not, and some of you are looking at it, well, I don't feel anything. Well, it's the Lord's here. He's here powerfully. He's here to do miracles. And so be aware because if you're not aware of the presence, you'll never be aware of the power. I like to look at it starts at presence. It continues in power. Now, there are a large number of you here today that need healing. There's something wrong with you. I want you to stand. Anyone here that needs healing? Okay. That's it. Put your hand up. How, how do Christians get that sick? Huh? <laughs> Put your hand up. We gotta fix now, that. The rest of you are appointed to heal. I want you to stand and get in groups of twos and threes and pray for each one of these people. Come on. Just form a group around them. Keep your hand up so they'll know who needs to be healed. That's it. We need some down here in front. We need some people down here in front. Come on. Groups of twos and threes. Praise the Lord. That's all right. It doesn't matter. Keep your hand up until a group Keep your hand up until somebody gets to comes you. To you. That's it. You, that's it. You pray for it. Be aggressive. They'll come.
It's nice to have your relatives out. All right, we're looking at lecture number four, Worldview. Again, it's in the notes. It actually doesn't have a number on it, I'm sorry to say. Do not confuse it with the written material in your syllabus. It's in the back of your syllabus if you're just catching on to that. Let me say by way of introduction to this particular lecture that probably this is the most important lecture of the week. It's not the one that will have the most uh, long-range uh, theological impact on you, but it is the one that will control a major aspect of the way you think from this point out. Once you understand where the difficulty has been in the past, as you've looked at scripture, uh, examined models, listened to testimonies, and found yourself continually fraught with frustration and skepticism, and you recognize after you've heard what I'm about to share with you that the issue isn't so much what happened as the way you view what happened. It'll give you from that point on a, a new freedom to examine the things of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the world today. I, though I'm not duplicating the lecture, I am uh, referencing the work of two very important men in my life, Chuck Kraft and Paul Hebert, both uh, teachers on the faculty of the School of World Mission. Both contributed heavily to my understanding of the issue of worldview at various times, either through writings and or through lectures. Keep in mind that most of us do not know we have a worldview. You were never uh, given a class or a course on it. You uh, know your mother didn't set, her, set you down on her knee and say, honey, this is our worldview as opposed to someone else's. And furthermore, even having had it named, you wouldn't know exactly what it was. Tonight we're going to try to focus on the issue of worldview and how it inhibits and controls much of our thinking and actions. Keep in mind that we're dealing with the presuppositions of how things work. Every culture has them. We, as part of the Western world, have a set, a viewpoint, a paradigm of worldview that controls the way we observe things, the way we look at things. If I had a globe next to me now and we were looking at that globe, as we look at that globe, we're looking through a lens. We don't realize we're looking through a lens. We don't have our spectacles on, but we are looking through a lens. That lens is the presuppositions of, of how we think things are made. And so when we look at the world and we draw conclusions back, we're going out through a lens and back through a lens. That lens is our worldview. That lens is our unarticulated presuppositions of how things work. In the Western world, it's heavily colored with materialism and rationalism. 
In the Western world, we are referred to as Western rationalists. Now, the two-thirds world, as Chuck Kraft calls it, has an experiential assumption, whereas we have a rational assumption, order, in everything that we look at, they have an experiential assumption. Shortly after the Second World War, a group of sociologists did one of the most intriguing studies of that time, in which they went into the Far East and uh, throughout Asia and interviewed several thousand people and uh, did a, a study on the way that people respond and think about things. One of the difficulties was that being Westerners, they started out with what we would call logic syllogism. They were speaking propositionally. What they said, a typical question on the questionnaire was, uh, cotton doesn't grow in cold countries. England is a cold country. Does cotton grow in England? Better than 97% of all the people that responded in the Far East said, we're not qualified to answer that question. We haven't been to England. Now, any child in, a, in the third grade in any Western community would, would have immediately responded, no, because they have been trained from earliest childhood to extrapolate from fact. But the presuppositions of our culture support that activity, whereas the presupposition of the Eastern culture does not. Now, keep in mind, we have many Easterners here today, people from all over Asia. Most of them have been trained in Western educational programs and in the process have had to lay aside their presuppositions born of their own culture, and they've become Westernized to a degree. One of the most interesting aspects of this course when I teach it at Fuller is watching the Asians and Africans particularly begin owning their own culture as we go through the, the many weeks, which frank, frankly gives a greater opportunity for a paradigm shift than doing it, I think, in a short course kind of setting like we have here this week. But in any case, it's really uh, fascinating to me to watch what happens as the course develops over the weeks. Class by class, the Easterners and the Africans began sharing stories that they normally wouldn't ha have shared in the context of a, of a class, that, or at least a seminary class, in the United States. Because up until this point, they weren't dignified by any kind of justif justification or any system in which they thought it was proper or appropriate to even talk about these things. They had, in fact, been westernized and, as, as a result of it, been inhibited about their own experience, their own culture, and their own viewpoint. Of course, they weren't aware of that until they got into a place where somebody gave them permission to be themselves, which is just a byproduct of studying this course. Worldview, then, is one of the primary inhibitors of us all. It controls the way we view things. Let's look at how worldview is uh, developed in our lives and uh, some other aspects of it. Keep in mind that when we start, when we begin dealing with worldview, we're dealing with the issue of seeing. One might ask the question, what do we see? How and what we see is a learned process. In your syllabus, which is uh, uh, in the third section on page five, 
we have a little diagram that we're now going to show on, on these two walls over here. You won't be able to see it as well there, but you will be able to see it on your, um, in your syllabus, if you would turn those on. Many of you have uh, had someone show you this at, at some time or another, taken a glance at it, and had the problem of not being able to see what others right next to you were seeing. Let me ask you a question. How many of you see a pretty girl when you look at that diagram? All right. How many of you see an ugly hag? How many of you now see what you didn't see before because you realize that other people are seeing something you didn't see? Let's turn them off for a moment. <laughs> now I want you to take note of what's happening in the room. The educational process has begun. People are dialoguing. Husband is saying to wife and wife is saying to husband, can't you see that? She's got a big nose and it looks like this. He says, she doesn't have a big nose, she has a cute little nose. Well, she's an elderly lady. No, she isn't, she's young. Now you laugh as you watch this, but I want you to know whole denominations have been established on less than this. <laughs> People looking at things from diverse ways. Would you like to see them again? Let's look at them one more time. Turn them back on. <laughs> oh, oh, now I see. How many of you can see both pictures now? Both pictures. Keep in mind, it may help you before we turn them off. Let me tell you something. If you're looking from the bottom up, you're much more likely to see the ugly hag. If your eye travels from the top down, you're much more likely to see the pretty girl. Try it one more time. Now can you see it? <laughs> All right, let's turn them off. You have them in your syllabus, you can practice at home.
This may have been the highlight of the conference for some of you. <laughs> What we're saying is that seeing is a learned process. It's difficult to see that that you've never seen before. The first time you see it, you don't see it, unless you have something with which to correlate it, something with which to organize it. Seeing, then, is, it must be learned, and it must be learned over a period of time. We're unaware of the fact that we learn to see from our earliest childhood, but it, those of you that are raising babies these days can, have watched your children learning to see, learning to de de developing depth perception, learning to see things from the perspective and understand those things that they do see. And as they grow up through the toddler stage, you're constantly helping them that with, with that learning process as they identify things and ask what they are. And you're explaining, and as you're explaining, you're helping them correlate and integrate with other things they've seen at other times. It's very difficult then to see something that you've never seen before that's unlike anything you've ever seen and relate it to anything. In the last few days, you've been watching what we call the Holy Spirit coming on people. You've been sitting here and squinting and leaning forward and hitting your neighbor and saying, I don't see anything. Do you see that? No, I don't see anything either. You know, they must be making this stuff up. But in the meantime, people are being touched by God and being healed. Because you have not been conditioned to see, because you have not been taught to see the things of the Spirit, you cannot see the things of the Spirit. By the time you leave Friday evening, I believe that most of you will be able to see the things of the Spirit. We're going to begin developing over the next few days in depth the issues of how to see. We'll, we'll train you, or as my grandpa used to say, We'll learn ya. <laughs> now, one of the interesting aspects of seeing and learning to see is that it controls the way you interpret things that you see. In uh, Mark, the 8th chapter, verses 22 through 25, we have an interesting encounter of healing in which Jesus is healing someone, and we can see the progression from one state of seeing to another state of seeing. Let's read that text. Mark 8, 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's... Can you imagine this? Every time I read it, I just picture... <laughs> and when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And he looked and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home and saying, don't go into the village, meaning don't, don't talk about this. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Never happened. <laughs> now, I want you to note several things that are somewhat peripheral to this, but then we'll get to the issue. First of all, note that Jesus had to pray twice for someone. You won't be praying for the sick very long until somebody will come up to you and say, listen, you know, if you, were, if you were doing it like the New Testament, if you were doing it like Jesus, it would be perfect every time. It would be instantaneous. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, even Jesus didn't do it that way. There were occasions in which he had to continue to minister. One of the interesting dynamics of the ministry to the Gadarene demoniacs is that the Greek says that he kept on saying unto them, 
come out, come out, come out. It took Jesus a while to get the, that man or two men delivered. The point that I'm trying to make is that even Jesus had to minister for a time with some people. A second aspect here is that we see this man re receiving healing uh, in stages. Now we've shared at other times and places that healing seems to come in three dynamics. There is the event. Sometimes people are healed instantaneously. And it's a wonderful thing. What, what, what uh, many of you, the 200 or so that were still here last night, uh, when uh, Janet or Janice, I'm not sure of her name, uh, came out of her wheelchair, uh, you, they, they saw this gal come out and hardly able to function. She was throwing her legs up. She could hardly walk. I mean, she hadn't walked in five years. And uh, then, then she turned around and headed back towards her wheelchair and all of a sudden stopped and started going like this and just ran around the whole auditorium. <laughs> Healing has a progressive dynamic. Sometimes it's instantaneous. Sometimes it's progressive. Now, in Janet's case, there's been atrophying of muscles. This woman was a ballet dancer. You know she was muscular before this thing hit her. And it'll take a while before those muscles completely fill out and strengthen again as she learns to exercise and as she learns to, to walk better and better. Now, my point is, is that the healing was an event, but the healing process occurs afterwards. Sometimes healing is an event with a process in which you never have to uh, pray again. Other times you'll find people healed, but not fully healed. And you say, well, why? I don't know why. If I knew why, I would tell you. I just don't know why. Some people are partially healed. I think there are many reasons. I, I mean, I can conjecture many reasons, but I really don't know the answer, so I'm not going to try to bore you tonight with my conjectures. All I know is after praying for thousands of people, it's not everybody gets healed totally, instantly, every time. Some people have to be prayed for again and again. We've seen people prayed for over a two or three year period that are still making progress. There's still healing going on in their bodies, minds, and spirits. Sometimes healing is progressive, sometimes healing is instantaneous, and sometimes healing is by process. It's usually one combination of those three. Here we see a progressive healing. Jesus prays for a man, steps back, and says, what do you see? He says, well, I see, looks like trees, and you know, evidently he had seen trees before, or he couldn't have said that. He said, people look like trees. He's seen people and trees, but he doesn't see them clearly. Jesus says, let's pray again. Don't you think he did that? It doesn't say that in the text, but I know that's what he did. <laughs> Don't you just know that? And he prayed again. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And so Mark wants us to be sure to understand that the man now was fully restored. Here's classic illustration of progressive healing. Now as it relates to the issue of learning to see, we can see a man in this particular case going through the process of learning to see. Sometimes worldview deals with the issue of communication. I'm going to put uh, some uh, a picture on these boards in a moment and there's going to be a question written above it. I want you to look at the, the board Decide, answer the question in your mind, and then I'm going to ask you for a response. But I don't want you to talk with your neighbor at this point, okay? Will you flick them on? Over here also? Thank you. You're going to have to lower that so that they can see the whole thing. That's it. All right. The question is, how many squares do you see? Okay, you've got three to do it. One, two, three. Turn them off. 
All right, how many of you saw 10 squares? How many of you saw 12 squares? How many of you saw more than 12 squares? How many of you saw more than 20 squares? How many of you saw more than 30 squares? Did anybody see more than 40 squares? How many of you would like to look again? All right, let's turn them back on. Now I see more. All right, would you turn them back off? All right, now that you've had an opportunity to look at it a second time, what is the correct answer? What? Now that you've had a chance to look at it again, what is the correct answer? The correct answer is whatever you saw, because the question wasn't how many are there. The question was how many did you see? Worldview has to do with communication. Look with me to John, the second chapter. The Gospel of John, second chapter, verses 13 through 22. We have the story of Jesus in the temple. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip of cords, and he drove all uh, from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. Those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered this, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it? In three days but the temple he had spoken of was his body after he was raised from the dead his disciples recalled what he had said and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken now this particular text deals with the learning process the conditioning process keep in mind that we're we're dealing here with devout Jews after all they're at the temple these are devout Jews. These Jews have been exposed to Scripture from their earliest childhood. They understood the issue of the temple and its development. They understood that it was God's preference that he not dwell in buildings, but that uh, made with hands, that he would dwell in the, the heart of the believer. You see, the reality of God's presence in the heart of the believer was every bit as much as profound in the Old Testament as it was in the New Testament. People were saved in essentially the same way in the Old and the New Testament. There's a major difference, of course, with the coming of the Messiah, with the Lord Jesus Christ, but the fact is people were saved by faith in both the Old and the New uh, Testaments. And people understood the dynamic of the temple, but they had become so enamored of the temple and they had fallen prey to the conditioning process to such a great degree that when they asked for a sign and Jesus responded 
and it was as a native to the setting, you know, they just assumed that using the word temple, that it could only have been referring to the physical building. Now it's interesting when most of you that have had, uh, many of you that have had any uh, seminary training and have taken hermeneutics, you know that that was a good response on their part. The text calls for that interpretation, doesn't it? Under the laws of hermeneutics. But you see, the, the full text doesn't because it reinterprets itself. But the early text does. They're in the temple setting. He's referencing temple. The word temple is used twice. He must be talking about the physical temple. Now I want you to note something. That today, using the same process, theologically, many of us are drawing conclusions that have a rational hermeneutical base, but are not the truth. They have a rational hermeneutical base, but they're not the truth. And we must go to God for the full understanding, the revelation of what he means. Now in this case, it's an after-the-fact dynamic. Jesus is prophesying. Prophecy has, a, has many uses, but one of the uses it has is clarifying after-the-fact future events. By that we mean, having gone through the event, God then reminded them of this occasion and reinterpreted Jesus' statement in the light of the event. And that's a hermeneutic that none of us have built into our processes. Because we've been taught from our earliest understanding that we must not let experience qualify our theologizing. Haven't we been taught that? I was taught that. I've been a Christian 20 years. I, I don't know when I first heard it, but it was sometime in the first two or three days. <laughs> and yet, I want to tell you something. As I've dialogued with men on both sides of this issue in question, I found that experience decidedly controls their thinking. Because in the final analysis, it always comes down to, I can't believe it because it has not been my experience. And I say, well, that, we can rectify that. Let's pray. <laughs> sometimes it's based on what we see, sometimes it's uh, communication, and sometimes it's conditioning. Keep in mind, you see according to your need. Your need can highly qualify that you're able to see. Uh, there are many illustrations in, in life. You know, if you've ever been in a, in a, at a picnic and needed to find a bathroom and were running through the park, you know what I'm talking about. You can't see anything else except those signs that are leading toward lavatories. Sometimes your need is so pressing in circumstances and situations that it obliterates everything else that you see. There are many illustrations in life and there are many illustrations in Scripture. On the occasion of the, uh, in the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter, uh, that we have the story of Jesus and the multitude, which is summarized in the latter part of that uh, in that verse, in the 14th verse, and 15th verse, it says this. This is after the occasion of the multiplication. It says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. Now you say, well, how, how does this relate to the whole issue of conditions Response. Well, keep in mind that the issue of the Messiah's coming 
was a long-held view of the practicing Jew. From the Old Testament into the New Testament times, we have the reality that the Messiah was, was uh, spoken of and looked forward to coming. By the time that Jesus had come, there were, uh, Jesus came on the scene, there were two principal views in the Old Testament. One that might be called the Danielic view and the other, another that might be called the Davidic view. Under the Danielic view, we had a, a perception of Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, to establish an eternal kingdom. Under the Davidic view, we had a, a restoration theology in which you saw the uh, line of David, the kingship of David, being reestablished on earth, and that the Messiah would come, and that, G that uh, Israel would resume its uh, early uh, posture and position. Keep in mind that by the time Jesus come, the, the Jew looked back to the, the, to the reign of King David as the good old days. That's when Israel was intact. All 12 tribes were together. The whole country was under, under the dominion of, uh, of the king and as a result under the, the dominion of God. Uh, the, the country thrived. They reached their, their preeminence in terms of economy and, and uh, in terms of military might. Uh, th those were the great days of Israel. And as the people looked back and they understood through various uh, prophets that had spoken the prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah, they interpreted that clearly as a political kingdom. Now this was so fixed in the minds, so fixed in the minds of the people of that day that, uh, that they, every time they saw something of this nature, uh, a, a supernatural phenomena, an incredible uh, miracle that occurred, they interpreted it in terms of this must be the prophet. Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Surely this is the Messiah is what they're saying. And of course they wanted to make him king because they tied his kingship to this world. They tied the kingship to Israel. Now, you say, well, it was that widespread? Yes, it was. It was the viewpoint of most of the Jews of that day. It was so much the issue in the lives of the apostles that they often came, have you ever noticed they often came off looking like the three stooges? Have you ever noted that? In many exchanges, they really come off looking dorky. They just don't get it, you know? They, they didn't understand. Remember the occasion when they thought they'd forgotten the bread? And they got all excited and tither over that. They, they made so many mistakes and so many misperceptions. They didn't understand his teaching. They didn't understand his deeds. They didn't understand his person. They didn't know who he was. What kind of man is this, they're saying. They don't understand most of what's going on most of the time. Furthermore, they were so preoccupied with their conditioned view of him that they kept wanting to make him king. They'd already bought their condos in Jerusalem. They, they wanted to move in and take over. They expected at any moment that he would come in and announce himself as king, run the Romans off and take over. This is why the dialogue with James and John's mother as she came in and asked, you know, how about my boys, could you put me on? <laughs> looking for position. This is, an underlying, this is so much the viewpoint that it, even after Jesus' uh, arrest, uh, mock trials, death, and resurrection, and just prior to the ascension, in the first chapter of Acts, they're all gathered across from the temple area on the Mount of Olives, and they turn to him and say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus goes, wow, and left. They still didn't get it. Can you see how a conditioned viewpoint will control the way you interpret everything you see? Now, I want you to note this. 
that this condition was so prevalent, so widespread, that it controlled his most intimate circle. The people that were the closest to him didn't understand what he'd come to do. Hello? Now, if that could happen with the first coming, you think it could happen with the second? You think that the church could have a view of how it's going to happen and it might be the wrong view? I just thought I'd offer that up to shake some of you up. I don't really mean it. Conditioned response. My basic thesis is simply this. My assumption about worldview and your assumption about worldview and about the nature of things that it will inhibit and or encourage our ability to see. They will help our comprehension and they will help us believe certain truths. Our worldview then acts as a screen, as a lens that controls what we can see and what we cannot see. If we change lenses, if we put on new spectacles, we can see things that we couldn't see before. It doesn't mean that it wasn't there before, it just simply means that now we can see it. This condition or worldview is passed on from generation to generation within the context of the culture with minimal change. Keep, some, keep in mind that these assumptions are never reviewed or revised. None of you has in your purse or pocketbook or wallet a set uh, of your values and, uh, and an artic well-articulated perception of worldview. You don't know how much your culture is controlling the way you interpret this thing when you read it. You don't realize that as you read scriptures, there are certain things that your brain goes tilt. Nope, next page. Unimportant, not relevant, not attainable. Can't mess with that one, they'll kick me out of the denomination. <laughs> and we go on to the next text. Now, none of you, I'm going to assume this, I, and I do believe it, none of you, all of you have more integrity than that. You don't know that process is going on. You're not aware, brought, brought to your attention, you're, you're too honest. You, you wouldn't come to Jesus to do that. You didn't become a Christian to cop out. You accepted the Lord to follow him. You don't know you're doing that. But I'm just pointing out the fact that you're doing it because I've been doing it, and I'm still doing it, and I'm trying not to do it. And now I'm aware of the struggle that's going on, whereas before I didn't even know it existed. Now the importance of this subject of worldview is easily related to such issues as theology, practice, and effectiveness. And propositionally, what I'm saying to you is this, that because of our Western rationalism, because of uh, the uh, materialism that controls us, because of our empirical uh, perceptions of things, we have a great difficulty in understanding the cosmic dynamic of the scripture. All of us would fiercely defend the fact that the scripture is the word of God and that, it has, that it's telling accurately the stories and the issues of those things that it, that it talks about. We believe this book, but when we read this book, we read it with a worldview that inhibits our understanding of this book. Keep in mind, from the first page on of the New Testament, we see the dynamic 
of both an empirical world and a cosmic world. There's constant interaction between beings of both worlds. There's angelic visitations. There's apparitions. There's dreams going on. There's visions going on. There's uh, later on tongues and interpretation, but before that prophecy. There's all kinds of supernatural manifestation and interaction going on between men and their God and his uh, uh, emissaries and messengers. Continual interaction from page one on. We see the dynamic. We all see that, but in our world and in our time and in our age, we're not conditioned to that. Most of you are not expecting an angel to visit you tonight to tell you what you ought to do with the rest of your life. You're not anticipating receiving leading from that realm. But in the New Testament, we see leading of this sort. We see this kind of thing going on. Why did it go on? Because they could receive it? Yes. Why don't we receive it today? Because we resist it. Is it still happening today? Yes, it is. I can document that. And furthermore, it's happening to us. But we can't see it, understand it, or relate to it. You know, over the years, I used to be embarrassed by people in my church. This was years ago when I was pastoring in another church. I would be embarrassed by people that would come and give me testimonies about weird things. <laughs> I remember a lady that came to me one time and said, uh, uh, Pastor, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about my conversion experience. I, I tried to talk, to it, uh, uh, talk about it to another pastor, and uh, he wouldn't let me talk about it. And I, and I really need to talk about it because I don't understand what happened to me. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, well, one night I was at a party with my husband, and uh, it wasn't going very good. It was in a neighborhood party, and so I just decided to come home early. And so I went back to the house, and when I walked in the door, the moment I walked in, I sensed the presence of someone, and it sort of frightened me. And I, I called the dogs, and they came in, and it wasn't the dogs. And we looked around the house. We didn't find anybody. And finally, I got a little bit quieted. And so I went on into my bedroom, and as I was walking into my bedroom, uh, and I walked around the bed, I heard a voice speak to me. I said, what did it say? Well, she said, well, that's what's so odd. She said, my name is Lee, and everybody knows me, including my husband is Lee. No one that I know that lives in this area knows that my full name is Rosalie. And this voice, she said it was a very melodious voice, said Rosalie. And she said, I turned and looked, and there was no one there. And I thought, it must be in my imagination. No one would call me Rosalie. And so she said, I, I turned back around and I, and I uh, started to get my robe and things and I was uh, getting ready to undress and I heard the voice again. And this time I didn't turn around and I said, who is it, Lord? And he said, yes, Rosalie. It's time for you to know me. And she fell on her face and receive the Lord, her God, as her Savior. <laughs> now, when she told me that story, I said, that's weird. <laughs> and immediately took her through the four steps of salvation <laughs> to make sure she was really saved. She left the room hurt. Because, you see, my worldview controlled the way I interpreted her experience. Are you hearing me? And as a result, I cheapened the experience for her. Thank God, years later, 
after God began dealing with me in some of these areas, I, was, I ran into her again and I apologized abjectly and uh, was well received. She said, yes, it did hurt me, but I'm thankful now that you understand that I really met Jesus that night. I really came to know him. I didn't know all about him until weeks later after we started going to church, but I knew him from that moment forward. Isn't that hot? <laughs> Don't you like that? Well, let's take a break then. <laughs>